Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk Waters of the United States, or WOTUS, with Ellen Kalinske, president of Ellen Kalinske LLC, and former Associate Deputy Assistant Administrator for Water at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Ellen is an expert on all things WOTUS, and I'll ask her to tell us why this term is so important for federal regulation of surface water, why it's so tricky to define, and how the Trump administration is seeking to change the definition to reduce regulation. If you're like me, and you know that WOTUS is really controversial and really important, but you're not sure why, then this is the podcast episode for you. One quick production note, we recorded this episode back in March of this year, and since our recording, the Trump administration has published its final rule in the Federal Register on April 21st. Stay with us. All right, Ellen Galinsky, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's great to have you with us. I'm delighted to be here. So, Ellen, we're going to talk today about something called the waters of the United States, uh, which is a very important term uh, for uh, federal water regulation in the United States. We're going to uh, talk about what the term means. We're going to talk about its context, and we're going to talk about uh, recent changes to the way it's being interpreted. Um, but before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested and started working on environmental issues? I sure can. Uh I grew up in the 60s and 70s when the environmental movement was just starting. And uh, as all teenagers like to do, you want to be meaningful. I marched in the very first Earth Day. And we gave dead fish to polluters along the Hackensack River in New Jersey. Probably another reason why I'm interested in the environment growing up in New Jersey. And uh, we also took a field trip to a, a landfill in New Jersey. And I saw all this pollution oozing into the Hudson River. Uh, So I was hooked. I knew I wanted to help the planet, and uh, I really dedicated uh, my educational career and then my professional career to working on the environment and specifically water issues. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, those those images, I can certainly, you know, I I haven't seen images like them much in my lifetime, thankfully, because which is a good uh, thing. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, because of the work you and, and many others have done before. So let's get into talking about the waters of the United States and, and the Clean Water Act. Um, the term itself, waters of the United States, which we'll probably refer to as WOTUS, uh, plays a really important role in how EPA regulates water pollution under the 1972 Clean Water Act. Can you give us a sense of why that term is so important and how it is defined in the Clean Water Act? Uh, certainly. So it's just incredible how one little term has so much power, but the whole uh, applicability of the Clean Water Act is really uh, depends on uh, and applies to waters of the United States. So it's really important what that means right. because that's how all the uh, your permits are required, uh, oil spill prevention and response, other cleanup programs, grant programs, uh, both to public entities, uh, but also Uh, just to the states, uh, their funding depends on this waters of the U.S. notion. So uh, the 72 Clean Water Act, uh, you know, they were starting off with, uh, you know, something new. So they came up with these uh, categories of waters of the U.S., but they didn't really define them. So uh, over the years, it's really been left to interpretation. For instance, 
waters of the U.S. include traditionally navigable waters. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean a cruise ship has to sail on it? Or does it mean you could take your kayak uh, out? There's no definition. Similarly, it covers tributaries to these navigable waters. What's a tributary? Is it a little trickle? Is it a roaring river? Uh, we don't know. And uh, another term, adjacent wetlands and waters. What does adjacent mean? Do you have to be touching it? Uh, can you be six feet away like we're all doing uh, these days? Uh, so um, those terms you can see are really open to interpretation. And then it also included interstate waters, territorial seas, impoundments. That's pretty, you know, you can pretty much figure out what that is. And then also this notion of other isolated waters that have a significant nexus to the traditionally navigable waters, totally undefined again. Uh, so you can see why we ended up in court. Yeah, for sure. The um, So the next question I'd like to ask is, as I was doing some background reading to prepare for this podcast, and I'm obviously far from the expert um, here, but one of the things that uh, it, it seemed as I was doing this reading is that there, uh, as you allude to, there's been quite a bit of confusion over the years about what exactly was and was not included in Waters of the United States. So can you talk a little bit about that and in particular how the Obama administration's EPA sought to define the term in the rule that it published in 2015? Yes, I'd be glad to, uh, since I was part of that administration when we did this work. Uh, we were trying to clear up all this confusion I was talking to you about, all the court cases. Some court cases had contradictory opinions, so we didn't even know uh, what we were supposed to do in terms of implementing uh, this waters of the U.S. definition. So our goal was to clarify the definition by drawing basically indisputable lines that would make it clear what waters are regulated under the Clean Water Act so we weren't spending our time in court or on lengthy uh, field studies to determine was this water connected or not connected, but that we could agree on certain uh, waters that were always jurisdictional. Uh, so uh, what we did was uh, started out going to the science, which is always a good policy. And uh, our Office of Research and Development at EPA did a review of the scientific evidence over 1,000 published articles uh, uh, based on studies of streams and watersheds, and basically to show how watersheds are connected from the headwaters to the mouths of the rivers where they dump into the ocean and also connected with their floodplains and the wetlands that surround them, both connected on the surface, but also in shallow groundwater, uh, much like a human circulatory system with your uh, capillaries and veins and arteries and lymph nodes and everything's connected. Uh, that's the analogy we like to use. Mm -hmm. Great. And so the, that sort of clear definition that you and, and the administration sought to develop um, can you talk a little bit more ab about it, and in particular, what types of waters were included? And you've already mentioned some of the key terms, but if you could elaborate on that a little bit, and then also maybe give us a sense of, uh, you know, what what about the this definition generated controversy? Because as we'll discuss in a few minutes, there's been quite a bit of controversy oh, yes. surrounding this definition. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yes. So. Uh... You know, I talked about the different categories that are in the Clean Water Act, and some are pretty obvious, like uh, interstate waters 
and uh, territorial seas and lakes and ponds. People know what that is. But uh, EPA and the Corps, it was a joint rulemaking. Uh, what they focused on was to give more operational definitions of tributaries, of wetlands, of what adjacent is, uh, based on science and also based on years of experience in delineating these areas so that uh, there'd be more certainty about what was covered and what wasn't. Uh, and uh, in addition, uh, the Corps of Engineers has multiple districts all over the country. And as is, happens when humans are making decisions, some districts made decisions differently than others. So it appeared in some areas of the country that all of a sudden we were regulating more waters, whereas really in other parts of the country, those were already regulated. So there was an appearance uh, of uh, in some areas that, uh, wow, all of a sudden you're claiming jurisdiction over all these waters and, and getting in our business and you shouldn't be. So uh, let me just uh, talk about um, two of the really controversial areas. One was defining tributaries of traditionally navigable waters. So before uh, tributaries was not defined, so you didn't know how big did it have to be, did it have to flow year-round. So we looked at what are the physical signs of flow that, you know, when water is flowing, it carves channels. So if, if water isn't flowing that frequently, you're not going to have a channel, and maybe it's not that important to make it jurisdictional. So what we defined a tributary as having a bed bank and ordinary high water mark. Those are physical signs that anybody could go out and see. And, uh, and we said that means they're part of the watershed system. So what happened was this did include some streams that we call ephemeral because they flow only after rainfall or snowmelts. It ended up including some of those which are very important, especially out in the West, where those are your source of waters. Uh, because in the summer, everything's dry, so you really depend on that rainfall. Uh, also, seasonal streams, which are technically called intermittent. And then there's waters that flow year-round called perennial. Nobody was arguing that those shouldn't be covered. But we looked at the system rather than how many days a year it flows. And uh, that's how we determine tributaries. Now, a byproduct of that is that a lot of ditches ended up becoming jurisdictional where maybe they weren't before. Like, uh, So the only ditches that were excluded were if they were constructed in an upland. So if a ditch went through a wetland or roadside ditches that intercepted other waters, those were included, and that, uh, that created a little controversy. Uh, moving to wetlands, uh, a big issue was this wetlands and other waters that have to be adjacent. So we actually defined what adjacent meant. And it did not mean touching. It meant adjacent meant having a shallow subsurface or a surface connection to a water that was already jurisdictional. So, you know, if, if a, a river flooded over its banks and connected the floodplain and there were wetlands in that floodplain, then those wetlands would be pulled in. If a lot of times you have um, low-lying areas that are maybe a little bit away from 
a river, maybe even half a mile away from a river. But, you know, we all know them as the swamps. You know, they have trees with um, that can tolerate water. They provide a lot of important functions uh, to control flooding and filter pollutants and provide wildlife habitat. So those were considered adjacent, even though they weren't touching, they were connected by the water network. So uh, those were uh, two really important uh, definitions that were included in the 2015 rule. Mm -hmm. And can you give us a little bit more insight into how to think about like what, how much that expanded the scope of uh, what was subject to regulation under the, the Clean Water Act? I yes. mean, you mentioned that there, there's a lot of uncertainty, right? So, um, and that different core jurisdictions might have been approaching those types of waters differently. Um, but can you just elaborate on that a little bit more so we get a sense of scale in terms of how much of an expansion this was, or like, if we even have the data to answer that question? Yes, Daniel, I can. And uh, again, this is an estimate, and it's actually pulled from the recesses of my past work. Uh, but we did look at EPA and the core looked at, is this an expansion of jurisdiction? And in some cases, it wasn't because particular core districts were already considering all those. And unless they got sued, they could go on their merry way. And uh, some areas weren't. So we estimated maybe a 5 to 15% increase in uh, coverage for Clean Water Act programs based on implementation using these new definitions. Great. That's really helpful. Um, so we've talked for the last few minutes about uh, the Obama administration's rulemaking uh, for with regard to what is and what is not uh, a, a water of the United States. Or uh, can I even say that? A water of the United States? Yes. I should probably just uh -huh. say waters of the United yeah. States, right? <laughs> Either works. <laughs> Okay. Um, so let's move on now to talking about what the current administration is doing. And um, as just a little bit of background, and you can please do correct any of this that I that I uh, garble. Um, the Trump administration, uh, my understanding is repealed the Obama era clean water rule in December 2019, uh, and has since uh, finalized their own rule, which is called the Navigable Waters Protection Rule in January of uh, 2020. Uh, although the rule hasn't been published, I don't think yet in the Federal Register. Correct. In, in any case, can you give us a sense of, you know, what's different in the Trump administration's rulemaking uh, relative to the Obama administration, one that you just described? Yes, Daniel, I certainly can. But first, I just wanted to mention that uh, that repeal rule is has actually been appealed and is in the courts okay. because, uh, you know, as with anything that gets done these days, immediately, whatever side you're on, it's in the courts. And yeah. uh, there was some discussion about whether it was legal or not the way the Trump administration repealed the 2015 rule. Uh, in any case, it wasn't uniformly being implemented across the country anyhow because of other lawsuits. So there's just been a lot of confusion, uh, and there still is. But at any rate, when this uh, navigable waters rule is um, published, it will become effective. And uh, it does uh, have uh, some significant differences uh, from not only the Obama-era rule, but from the Clean Water Act itself. And it actually pulls back protections that were in the clean water rule, which I think should trouble people because that clean water rule, we've held it up as our uh, 
guideposts for all these years. Um, so no change in the categories, uh, the traditionally navigable waters, territorial seas, lakes, ponds, uh, et cetera. Uh, but again, we're going to go to the tributaries and the wetlands. That's really where the controversy is. So this new rule defines tributaries as a river stream or natural channel that contributes flow to downstream waters, and it has to be free-flowing, perennial, or intermittent, which is seasonal, in a typical year. So right off the top, it just eliminated most of the headwater areas that are so important. Uh, it's where uh, our stream network starts. Uh, it provides drinking water to many people uh, for downstream uh, purposes. So that's worrisome. And then also this idea, typical year. So in other words, if the stream doesn't flow in a typical year, you're not going to cover it. What's a typical year? Well, uh, it's not defined in the rule, but uh, the Trump administration did put out some guidance, which again, guidance is not really enforceable. It's guidance. Uh, and it suggests that you might look at the past 20 to 30 years of flow data for a stream to determine if you're under a typical year or not. First of all, that requires a lot of research and time, which this administration said criticized the last rule about and said, we're going to make a clear rule. That's not clear. And also, what is a typical weather pattern in the last decade? There hasn't been one because we have changing weather patterns. We've had tremendous floods. We've had tremendous droughts. How do you figure out what is typical in that? It's very difficult. Uh, so um, we feel that that's uh, many environmental groups, uh, states, other wetland and stream scientists feel this is problematic uh, and that this will eliminate uh, some very important stream systems from falling under the Clean Water Act. And um, I just do want to cite some data here. Yeah. Uh, EPA and the Corps did an analysis uh, before the 2015 rule to see how many streams flow all year, how many are intermittent, et cetera. It, it's an estimate because you have to do it from mapping and from uh, hydrological data that the geological survey provides. But um, at that time, we found that only 30% of streams nationwide are clearly perennial, free-flowing all year. So it's only certain that 30% of the streams will be covered. Now, obviously, it's going to be more than that because you're going to pull in some seasonal streams, but you're still starting with the certainty of only 30%. That is worrisome. Uh, also, this definition of tributaries excludes ditches that uh, might have a fairly significant flow and be important in the system uh, because only ditches that were used to be a tributary are included in this definition. Uh-huh. So these would be like ditches along... Roadside ditches, yes. Yeah, during stormwater events, they would flow. Exactly, yes. They would flow, you know, really a lot. Uh, that's a lot of information to take in, but now we have the wetlands issue. Right. So um, this uh, navigable waters protection rule also defines... Uh, adjacent waters, so wetlands adjacent to tributaries or navigable waters, and they define adjacent as you have to touch, physically touch, 
not connected by water, not part of the system. If you're not touching, then you're not jurisdictional. That ignores the functions of wetlands that I was talking about before, uh, where you have low-lying forests that have water up to the surface. They meet the scientific definition of wetland, uh, and they're important for wildlife habitat. Uh, they're important for filtering. They're important for flooding, which is, you know, a real problem these days uh, with uh, our uh, torrential rains and such. So this really limited a decrease uh, in um, wetlands. And uh, just to give you, I know you like data. Yes. So I have, I have some for you. We're ready. And uh, I'm quoting this source is from Trout Unlimited. Trout Unlimited, you know, it's got hunters and fisher people. Uh, associated with it. They're not a typical uh, green group, but they recognize the importance of these waters and wetlands, you know, for hunting and fishing and wildlife and recreation, all of that. So they looked at the geological survey maps and they found that there's 6 million miles of streams flow only after a significant rainfall. So those 6 million miles would not be covered under these definitions. And they also found that 42 million acres of wetlands, which are half of the wetlands left in this country, we've already destroyed so many, but 42 million acres of wetlands, almost 50%, would be considered non-adjacent to a uh, regulated water under the new rule, and therefore you could do whatever you want to them without a permit. That's troublesome. I think that should be troublesome to anyone because we're not saying people can't uh, use these areas. We're saying you just need a permit and you need to minimize your environmental impact. So, um, you know, many are saying, including EPA's own scientific advisory board, that this new rule ignores the science and also many judicial opinions and really doesn't increase certainty because you still have to figure out what's a typical year, for instance. Right. Well, uh, one quick follow-up on that wetlands uh, question. Do um, We did an episode uh, several weeks or maybe several months back with Lisa Mandel from the Natural Capital Project at yes. uh, Stanford University, and we talked about wetlands mitigation banking. So does, um, does the fact that one would not need to get a permit from the EPA to you know develop land on one of these wetlands that you're talking about does that mean you you like you wouldn't need to do the wetlands mitigation banking to like to offset that impact that is absolutely correct and that is why the mitigation bankers don't like this rule because it could put them out of business hmm. exactly really interesting okay let's uh, let's keep going and um i want to ask you two more questions on 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 this this term, waters of the United States. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what flexibility state governments might have with regard to regulating these types of waters? So, for example, if the federal government is 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 choosing not to regulate certain, uh, you know, certain intermittent streams or certain wetlands, do states have the authority to kind of supplement what the federal government is doing? Great question, Daniel. And uh, there's no one answer to that. So, before I was at EPA, I was actually a state. Uh, environmental regulator in Virginia. And uh, while I was in that position, we developed Virginia's uh, wetland regulations. So we are uh, one of those states, along with uh, our neighboring states of Maryland and Pennsylvania, 
uh, North Carolina, some others, there's uh, about half of the states in the country have their own rules uh, defining what their waters and wetlands are. uh, So they're independent of the federal definition. But there are about, uh, there are a lot of states, the other half, that don't have their own definition. So they rely on the federal definition of WOTUS. So if it's not covered federally, they can't come in and cover it as a state unless they go back and change their rules. And furthermore, uh, some of those states also have rules that they can be no more strict than the federal regulations for any regulations, air, water, waste. So, you know, people are saying, well, that could be changed. Well, sure it can, but that takes time. It takes money to do that. And meanwhile, their waters are in jeopardy. So there's many states that are concerned. Uh, Arizona did a recent survey uh, of how the states are feeling about this rule because they're concerned about it, because they're one of those states that relies on the federal definition, and they're thinking of doing their own rulemaking. Uh, 42% of states said the WOTUS rule will have a large impact on what waters are regulated in their state. So, you know, they are uh, looking at what they're going to do to solve this. And uh, it bears mentioning that states are really strapped for cash. Uh, and the uh, budgets they have are not going to the environmental agencies, believe me, because there's so many other services that states are having to provide for their right. citizens. Right. And especially in these times when the economy is, um, you know, is not in great shape. Yes. Right. That'll be exacerbated. Um, so last question now on WOTUS before we move to our sort of top of the stack closing question, which mm-hmm. is, you know, at RFF, we're often thinking about, um, you know, the the impacts to the environment that human activities cause. And then we're thinking about the, the benefits that those activities provide to society. Um, are there uh, studies or other good evidence that you've seen that can help give us a sense of the benefits versus the costs of like different approaches to defining WOTUS, right? You could imagine a sort of trying to get every single, you know, droplet of water uh, regulated, and, and that's probably going too far. But then obviously, we don't want to just leave everything um, up to the market when it comes to, you know, water quality and environmental issues. So can you just talk a little bit about benefits and costs here and what evidence might be out there? Yes, absolutely. And I knew you were going to ask an economic question because your resources for the future. Of course. And uh, I'll get a plug in for all of you. Uh, resources for the future is uh, provides excellent economic studies and economic guidelines that uh, most government agencies use uh, as they evaluate uh, the impacts of their rules and regulations. So it is a requirement. Uh, for the federal government to do an extensive economic analysis for any new regulation, and it's reviewed by the Office of Management and Budget. And prior to this administration, the analysis was to include both direct and indirect costs and benefits. And you could also include monetized benefits, which are those that are easy to put a cash value to, but also non-monetized benefits like... um, being out in nature or, you know, a a well-being, those kinds of things uh, as well. So uh, the 2015 Clean Water Rule did have a very detailed economic analysis that was approved by OMB, and it showed much greater benefits than costs. It provided an estimated 388 to 514 million 
annually of benefits. But those benefits included reducing flooding, filtering pollution, providing wildlife habitat, supporting hunting and fishing, and recharging groundwater. So not all of those had specific monetized benefits. You had to calculate it from referring to other studies. Uh, those benefits significantly outweighed the costs of 162 to 279 million per year. And those costs were mainly to get your permits, to do the mitigation that you referred to earlier, and to reduce pollution to waterways through uh, other pollution control means. So even the lowest estimate of the benefits exceeded the highest estimate of the costs. Pretty clear cut. So when the Trump administration, you know, one of the first uh, executive orders of the current president was to get rid of this uh, clean water rule and go back and look at, you know, what the rule should be. And one of the reasons was that it was economically disastrous. So this administration went back on the same economic study that was done before, and they took out all the indirect benefits, but they kept the indirect costs in. So no surprise, all of a sudden, the 2015 rule had more costs than benefits. And they also showed that this rule that they have just finalized, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, was cost effective. So there's been a lot of comment on the Trump policy because this is not just happening at EPA. It's uh, agency-wide that they've been told not to look at indirect benefits. And that's how they're able to roll back a lot of the rules that were put forward in the last administration. Hmm. Great. That's really, really helpful. And getting that sort of procedural administrative perspective is is incredibly mm -hmm. helpful. Uh, you know, it m makes me think we should do a whole episode on sort of the Administrative Procedures Act. <laughs> and um, I think that would be great. And you've got experts at Resources for the Future who... Uh, conduct these studies all the time. They know yeah. all the ins and outs. Yeah, I'll have to ask around the water cooler or the virtual water cooler <laughs> and yes. see, see what people think. Um, great. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for telling us uh, about WOTUS, helping us understand it, putting it in context. This has been fascinating and incredibly useful for me and, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Uh, so let's close out now with the last question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? So something you've read or watched or heard recently uh, that you would share with our audience. Um, and I'll just do a really quick second of a recommendation that my colleague Margaret Walls recently made. Yes. Uh, which is to check out uh, Cadillac Desert, the book by Mark Reisner about uh, the American West and its water history and its oh, water yes. challenges. Um, yes. So I'm, you know, more of an energy guy than a water guy in my own research. And so learning about water, uh, this is a really great place for me to start uh, mm -hmm. and to get a sense of some of the history. And it's absolutely fascinating. So uh, now is a great time to be reading books. <laughs> we all need uh, that release, uh, reading fiction books, but then also the reality check reading nonfiction books. So I have one of each. So uh, my friend Sandra Postel, uh, who's a water expert, uh, recently uh, published a book called uh, Replenish, The Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity. And uh, this is not a super technical book. Anybody could read it. And really, through storytelling, she shows the importance of protecting the water cycle and working with nature to restore nature and gives examples of where people have done that successfully and examples where people have interfered with the water cycle, um, Colorado River, 
being a good example yeah. uh, where there's very little of um, the Colorado River left. It's all piped in a million different places away from its source. And But how you can restore these areas working with nature. So uh, I just thought it was a fascinating book. I really commend it. And then I do love fiction books. And recently I read Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, which you might be familiar with. I know many people are. And uh, aside from the plot, it takes place in a coastal wetland in, it's either North or South Carolina, I just forgot uh, at this point. But it just is so evocative of the beauty and values of nature just come through on every page. And it really helps you understand why are we so worried about this definition of waters of the U.S. and why is it so darn important when you read things like that or when you go out in nature, which again, uh, during this time, we should all be taking walks and enjoying nature and realizing how important it is to protect it. Absolutely. Well, very well said. And uh, thank you so much for those recommendations. And thank you again, Ellen, for joining us on Resources Radio and talking to us uh, about waters of the United States. We really appreciate it. Well, and thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.